we continue our uh, series here in Advent, um, and our Advent Sunday focused on joy, the title of this afternoon's message is The Kingdom is on the Move. And our readings are going to be from the book of Luke again, in Luke chapter 2. So let's look together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver the child and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place in the guest room. Now in that same region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. And when they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. And Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as it had been told them. When the eighth day came, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Just a quick note. You always go up to Jerusalem. You never, ever go down to Jerusalem. It's not possible. Jerusalem is always an up. But also, if you were, we heard this years ago, if you were in an airplane above Jerusalem and you parachuted out of Jerusalem to the city of Jerusalem, you'd still be going up to Jerusalem because you always go up to where God's presence is. Okay, so they go up to Jerusalem, which is a geographical term, but also a theological term. And they're doing what is required by the Torah, the law of Moses, and they give the offering for the poor. Just a couple quick notes as you continue to read. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. 
And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. And at that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. There ends our reading. The kingdom is on the move. My daughter and I are reading through the books of Narnia, and we're quite a number of ways through. And as such, I don't know if you know the rule. Was, did you grow, grow up with this rule? You can't see the movie until you read the book. Was that a rule in your house? It was a rule in my house. Can't see, cannot see the movie until you read the book. So we've been reading all the books. But we did read and then watch The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, this film. Have you guys seen it, filmed by Narnia? Quite good, yeah. Have you, who's read the book? Thank you, very good. And so those of you who raised your hand for the movie, if you didn't raise your hand for the book, we took note. We'll be sending you a copy in your house. I'm just joking. You have homework. Okay. One of the most lovely parts, and I don't know if you've read it as an adult recently, but when you read it through, you're like, oh, man, C.S. Lewis is like quoting chapter and verse sometimes. But one of my favorite parts happens when the children first enter Narnia, and they're in the home of the beavers. And the beavers are having this conversation, and they say, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Aslan is on the move. It causes you to go, oh, something is happening. And they knew it even without knowing who it was. I think Luke is doing this this whole chapter. Actually, he's been doing it since the very beginning that we opened up the Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 1 and on. And now as we've just read 40 verses in chapter 2, several times, I think Luke is saying, God is on the move. The kingdom of God is on the move. But he's doing this even in light of the fact that there's this heavy Roman Empire and a rule of King Herod of Judea. So let's look at this first verse that Luke gives us. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to their own towns to be registered. So when Luke does just this little bit, he gives us all this very important key information that we need to know for setting the stage. He's telling us that the Roman census, which is signaling an empire-wide focus to Luke's narrative... This isn't something that's just happening in some random backwater village. This is something that's happening in the middle of the Roman Empire. It's not Rome, but Rome reaches all the way to this land between. And the Greek word behind decree is dogma, that Caesar would issue a ruling and to resist meant war and death. So right at the very beginning, when we hear this decree, that Rome has issued this decree. When we hear that this census is happening, we immediately are seeing an issue, a conflict of kingdoms in the middle of our story. 
Also, we know this meant death because in 6 CE, about six to eight years after the time of Jesus being born, after the death of Herod the Great, Rome proclaimed another census. And as a result, Judas the Galilean, a zealot from Gamla, which is sort of like the headquarters of the, Gamla, of the zealots in the Galilee, a zealot from Gamla began a revolt along with others, and he was killed and his followers were dispersed. And it's mentioned in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. He did it along with Zadok, a Pharisee and a large number of zealots. Judas and his followers offered strenuous resistance to this census. Judas proclaimed the Jewish state as a republic, recognizing God alone as king and ruler and his laws as supreme. And after his death, the revolt continued to spread and serious conflicts ensued. Two of his sons, Jacob and Simon, were crucified by Tiberius Alexander. And a third son, Menachem, became the leader of the Sicarii, uh, a group of zealots that would take a curved sword and kill you as soon as look at you. And for a time, they had much power, but then he, Menachem, was killed by the high priestly party. So this has happened in 6 CE, and Luke knows this story. And so when Luke says, by the way, there's a census that's going to be taken, everybody else would be like, oh, is it, is it that kind of thing? Like, are, are they going to do it? What are they going to do? What, what does it mean when the empire wants to take a census? Let's go back to one of our voice, our song singers for this series, Drew Jackson. In those parentheses these days, two things are certain, three are guaranteed. Death, taxes, empire. The empire will tax us to death. We will be dead if we don't pay the empire's taxes. The empire loves taxes. The empire loves death. Of this, I am certain. This is exactly what Luke knows is right behind the words that he's written down. So the question is, what will Mary and Joseph do? Well, instead of rebelling, Mary and Joseph obey. They obey governmental command, even when expecting a baby, even when it's not convenient for them. They go from their own town in Nazareth down to Bethlehem to the town of David. And Jesus and his followers are not part of a movement intent on military revolt. Can you tell me why this would be important for Luke to communicate in the telling of the gospel? Luke's still in the midst of a Roman empire, right? That'll be ruling for some time still. Rome's not going to fall for a while. And he wants to let anybody who happens to be reading know, we're not trying to overthrow the government. It's okay. We'll come and pay our taxes. But by the way, this kingdom's not, this Jesus kingdom, this movement is not of this world. And we're going to follow that instead. So it's very subversive right at the very beginning. So sitting right behind everything is this push of Roman empire and Roman power and military and death and taxes. And then Bethlehem, this small little sleepy town village known as the city of David, where David came from, son of Jesse, just about six miles south of Jerusalem, not long, day's journey at most. Now, while Mary and Joseph were there, the time came for her to deliver the child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place in the guest room. Now, the first thing many of you who grew up in church or watched any decent Christmas pageant are asking is, where is the inn and the grumpy, awful innkeeper? Isn't that your question right away? That must be in another version that she's not reading. No, no, it does not occur at all in our text. It comes from an early story told about Jesus, but not from the Bible. And in fact, the room that we typically will translate as 
in Cataluna is just the word for guest room. Luke knows the word for in. He uses it when he's telling the parable of the Good Samaritan and the Good Samaritan who goes and he pays an innkeeper a place for an inn for the man who's been beaten. That is not the word used here. The word used here is for guest room. So we're looking probably more like at some sort of housing situation like this. Do you see this nice little illustration and drawing where there is a home up top and then carved into a cave underneath and this is a long tradition that Jesus was born in a cave, would maybe be where you would have your animals, livestock. It's basically like protecting your bank account. Okay, this is the, the thing that helps your family live. You guys know how today you just think, oh, that would be nice to have some sheep. That's not what you all think, right? It'd be nice to have some sheep, particularly the baby ones that come at Easter time here. Like, this is how lovely, right? But then those of you who've lived five minutes anywhere near a bunch of sheep are like, eh, they're not too bright, also a little stinky, and they do things, right? They do do things often. So there's a lot of that. But the other thing you have to know is that if you didn't have livestock like this, you didn't live. Because probably at this time, 80% of the diet is based on cereals and grains. Women are spending a lot of time grinding those grains. And the other bits that you get, you get from your flock. So you probably have mostly a female flock, maybe one male, maybe. They don't really help you that much. They just need to do one thing every so often, and then you're good with them. And that's the one you'll probably eat once a year, maybe. But for the, the female sheep, you're going to keep them around. Because why? What are they going to give you? Milk, cheese, yogurt, cottage cheese, strange, all the cheeses, right? Who can live without all sheep and goats, all the cheeses. And what else are they going to give you? Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. They're going to give you more goats and more sheep. Exactly. We just, again, need that one every once in a while. So we need those. And then what else are they going to do? Somebody else said it. Wool. What do you use wool for? Blankets. What else? Clothes. If you have goats, you know what you use the goat hair for? Your tents, which are still a significant way of living in the land. Okay, so if you don't have a flock, you don't have clothing, you don't have dairy, you don't have meat, eventually, you don't have any of those resources that you need to have in order to live. Okay, so we do know that animals are there, and we think, well, why would anybody keep their animals in the house? Well, this is what you would do. So if they didn't live with just their home on top and the cave underneath, this is what archaeologists have found and said, this is probably what life looked like. Sleeping room upstairs, for those of us who've ever been to Israel, and we go to a beautiful Talmudic uh, early village called Katsrin, there's a reconstruction, right, of a home that's been found there. And you can go up to the top, and that's where the sleeping area is, unless it's particularly hot, and then you could sleep up on the roof. And down below would be the kitchen, and also then where you'd keep your livestock. And if it were cold, that's really great. They're going to even keep your house a bit warmer. So something like this. And what the gospel writer Luke is telling us is that when Mary and Joseph get there, there's no room for them in the sleeping room. It's full. And maybe it's because they're upset and they can count to nine and Mary and Joseph aren't yet married and they're thinking maybe they shouldn't sleep near. Or maybe they're just giving Mary some privacy. She's about to have a baby. She might not want to do that in the midst of all the sleeping people. Maybe the sleeping people aren't really interested in that either. We will give her some privacy. And so she goes and gives birth in the stable area. Now, this early tradition of Jesus 
being birthed in a cave, as opposed to the uh, European, northern European crushes that we all have with like the snow covered and the pine trees, yes, those things. Um, this early tradition from Ethiopia, from the Greek, from the Ethiopian church, the Greek Orthodox church, the Eastern church is highly held on to. It's somewhere, somehow, and this is also true when you go to Bethlehem and you go and you can see the traditional place that they remember the birth of Jesus down into a cave. We expect kings to be born in places like this, this beautiful Herodian that is also there in the Bethlehem region, of which Bethlehem is in the shadow of Herod's incredible palace. Isn't that where the king of the Jews should be born or the king of the world should be born? We don't expect the king to be born in a stable, in the shadow of luxury. We expect kings to be born in luxury. The kingdom of God is on the move. Now in that same region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. Now for those of you who've been keeping track, we've been doing this. This is our third Sunday of Advent. We have now more don't be afraid and this time to shepherds. This is the angel's favorite opening line. Boom, don't be afraid. Boom, don't be afraid. This is all he does. Gabriel shows up from one place to another. Specifically here, we don't have Gabriel's name, but it's another angel. Boom, don't be afraid. And constantly the response is terror. Terror, shaking, terror. So essentially what we're telling you is maybe don't ask for an angel to come and visit unless you really like terror. Um, shaking terror, okay? But here we have Luke continue. Now, this is the third time, if we've been counting, when the angels are going to show up and say something that they need to say. And here in this case, divine messengers now can be anywhere and speak to anyone. Should they only be in the house of God, in the temple? Yeah, they can be there. They can talk to Zachariah there. They can shut up a priest there, no problem. But then they're also going to show up at homes, and then they're also going to show up in fields. And they're going to show up to priests and to women and to shepherds. Luke, right at the beginning, is letting us all know that this kingdom is for everyone, that this kingdom is on the move. Now, what time of year do we think it is? Well, it's not when crops are getting ready to be harvested because you don't want sheep and goats out there eating the only grain you're going to have for the year. So it can't be in harvest time. And it's not going to be freezing cold winter this time of year because they're out in the fields and they're not idiots. So they're not going to be out there in the middle of nothing. They're probably in the fall, let's say, like after that harvest has happened and the feast of ingathering has happened and about the time when you really want sheep and goats to come do, do the thing that they do and have them in your fields. Great plan. Okay, not when you planted the seeds. You don't want to mess up your fields. So somewhere in between there, some scholars might suggest that maybe it was around the time of the, temp of the Feast of Tabernacles, of the Festival of Ingathering, of the Festival of Sukkot, because why? In the Gospel of John, it says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So it's super lovely time here. Now it's all ruined. Christmas is ruined. It's not December 25th. It's not wintry. It's not snowy. Let's all go home. Uh, we won't sing a little town of Bethlehem anymore. They've got the words. I mean, now I'm just joking. Okay, but just, just for you Bible scholars, we can know. Now the shepherds are there and they're doing what shepherds are supposed to do. They're protecting their flock. They're caring for the vulnerable. Like the shepherds of old, 
Name all the shepherds you can who are of our story that Luke pulls into, that the angel pulls into. Why go tell a shepherd? Why not go tell all the most powerful people? Because the shepherds are Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah and Rachel and Moses and David and Zipporah and others. The shepherds are the ones who know how to care for the vulnerable. The shepherds are absolutely the right people to tell. They know what to do with newborn birth in their midst. Now, when the angels show up, they say, hey, we've got good news. And the word there is euangelion. And the term has secular and political associations. It has also deep theological associations. Isaiah will talk about good news. The Bible talks about good news up to this moment. But particularly during this time, and Luke knows it and he's telling you about it, Roman propaganda about Caesar as Lord and King was considered euangelion, good news, everywhere. It was constantly being told in the Roman kingdom. Hey, hear about Caesar? Isn't that good news? And so the rule and the reign of Israel's God now challenges Caesar's universal lordship as ruler. Jesus's birth and ministry announced by the angel to the shepherds as good news means that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is on the move. In this case, the good news is the birth of Jesus. It's joyous, joyous, and for all people, not just citizens of Rome, but for all the world. A savior born in the city of David. Now that is the universal anchored in the particular. This is good news for all, but this is good news coming through the covenant, the continued covenant with David and David's descendants and the city of David, that prophecy is being fulfilled. It is good news for all of us coming through this community. So the question we'd all be asking is, well, where is God then? Where is God's kingdom when the force and the brutality of Rome and Herod are on the horizon, are sitting there right behind this whole story, sort of hovering over it themselves, hanging about it, being mentioned in and between all the lines. Because we expect announcements of good news to come with pomp and circumstance. And couldn't God have told it any way God wanted? But God told this announcement of good news to shepherds in the field. That's not our expectation. But it's how God does it. Because the kingdom of God is on the move. Things are being turned upside down. Things are being changed forever in this story. In contrast to the census, which was news of exploitation, of displacement, if not worse, the shepherds learn the good news is immediate and universal for all people. Now, we often jump to the cross as the definition of good news, as that gospel. That's what we use for the word good news, gospel, evangelion. Like, this is the good news. But here, the good news that causes great joy for all people is right now, salvation has been born. That's what the angel tells the shepherds. The angel doesn't show up and say, by the way, if later on you become deeply aware of your own sin nature, and then you go to Jesus and you say, I am so sorry, and I confess that I have sinned, and I have sinned against you, and against God, and against all the neighbor, like, I've done all that. Would you please forgive me? And then Jesus says, yes, and now here's your golden ticket to get into heaven for the rest of my life. Now, that is not bad news. That's good news, but that's not what's being talked about here. The good news is simply that Jesus has been born. 
and that salvation is now at hand. Salvation is not, by the way, again, a golden ticket to get into heaven. Salvation means there's respite from whatever oppresses in the community that hears and lives this gospel. The kingdom of God is on the move. Salvation means that we are now being set free, that men and women, shepherds, magi, Jews, Gentiles, slaves, and free will all come together to say, in our midst, we have a savior. It is the savior. It's not Caesar. That's not good news. This is good news. The kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. It's on the move. And while this good news is universal, it's anchored again in the particularity. Jesus is fully located in Jewish geography, in Jewish lineage, because as Mary's saying, he is the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. His name is Yeshua, God's salvation. Why do I take the time in this whole big long message to make sure you understand that? Because in every single generation, somebody rises up, even from within people who claim to be followers of a Jewish Messiah named Jesus, and says that the Jews are other and that they are not part of this story. And I'm here to tell you that that is a lie from the pit of hell, that it is from Satan, Satan's self the accuser, the stumbler. I don't say that about a lot of things, right? I don't get real, but I'm telling you that the sin of anti-Semitism in the church is big. And so I'm gonna take the time to make sure that we call it out and we be the people who do follow a Jewish Messiah, the Gentiles who follow a Jewish Messiah and are fully blessed and invited in. Footnote. Now, the angels say this, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a child wrapped in the bands of cloth and lying in a manger. What is the sign? Stop right here. What's the sign? Now, Zechariah wanted a sign. He was like, what's the sign? Prove it. And Gabriel was like, you're going to shut up because it's going to happen. And I don't really want you talking anymore. Mary doesn't ask for a sign. She just says, uh, point of order. Uh, how is this going to happen? And the angel's like, oh, it's totally cool. Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. Check. Answered that question. But the sign will be that your really, really old relative Elizabeth is also having a miraculous birth. And now here, what's the sign again? The sign for the shepherds is swaddling cloths and a manger. Not riding in the sky. Not a miracle right in front. That they're going to go and find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. Isn't that a crazy sign? They don't ask for one, but that's the one they get. And the stable and the manger make an important point. By the way, this is a manger. Has anybody ever seen those like really cute uh, wood creches? And that, they're so sweet. I love They look very comfortable. That does not look as comfortable. <laughs> but that's a manger. Because the manger is the place where you put water and there's a, typically like a hole right in the side where you could drain out the water and then you could plug it because your animals need water to drink. But I don't know if you know this, they did not have like personalized uh, dog and cat dishes like lamb and goat dishes said like Fido and things like that. The animals, I don't know, they could eat off the ground. That was allowed, all right? So... Luke is making sure we have this information. Why? Because Bethlehem is the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. It means house of bread. 
and a manger is a watering trough. Jesus is the bread of the world and living water. Jesus will share meals throughout his ministry where all are welcome. And the angelic announcement is good news for all. Humanity is hungry, not just for bread, but for communion. So Luke tells us that the bread of life has been born in bakery town. And that the one who will say, anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And springs of living water will flow from within them. That the living water has been placed in the place where we drink. Now, and suddenly the angels are there with the angel, with, there was with the angel, a great multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven on earth, peace, shalom among those whom he favors. It's like the biggest peacekeeping mission ever, right? Now, when the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go check this thing out, all right? Let's go see if it's happened. So they go with haste. Same phrase, when Mary is left, the angel leaves Mary. Mary's like, with haste, heads to go check out Elizabeth. With haste, now the shepherds go, and they find Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. And when they saw this, they made known what they had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had told them. And the shepherds go off and tell what they've seen and heard, becoming some of the earliest announcers of the good news. The kingdom of God is on the move. Now Mary and Joseph wait and wonder for the nine months of upheaval in their lives only now that they hear that their child in a manger is the sign the angels gave the shepherds in the fields. That's their sign again. And Mary treasures up all these things in her heart. Treasures by Drew Jackson. Some things that come my way I take and quickly discard so that they do not wound and leave scars. Or at least I try. But these things somehow burrow themselves deep within my memories. But other things uttered by the tongues of those who tend herds of tender words, I hold close to my breast and lock inside this treasure chest so that bandits who ride by cannot break inside and steal my dreams. These I ponder in the night watches, praying they do not float away on the winds of despair. Now let's move to the dedication of the temple. Now the ritual of circumcision demonstrates that Jesus, like John, is fully a member of the Jewish people, not just by genealogy, but also by covenant in the flesh. And Jesus' identity as a faithful Jew is affirmed in his father's house, which is what he'll tell his parents in just a couple chapters when he wanders away from them at his Passover in Jerusalem. Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Of course I'll be in my father's house. Like Elizabeth, Simeon is full of the Holy Spirit. Remember last week we talked about this theme in the Gospel of Luke, full of the Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. He's obedient to Torah and full of the Spirit. Again, in case anybody later on wants to tell you that you can't love the law and the Spirit and that you have to divide those two, you should go talk to Simeon. Okay? All right. I'll let him answer for himself. Simeon, whose name means hears or obeys, Shimon, has been looking forward to the consolation of Israel, eagerly anticipating the restoration of Israel. And he wants comfort and peace. He's known war. He's known empire. He's known Roman and Herodian rule. Now he wants divine rule. And he's been waiting for it for his whole life. And he's waiting in the temple when he sees them come. And like Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, and Huldah, Anna is a prophet. And for those who mistakenly think of the temple as male-only space, Anna is now correcting you from 2,000 years ago. Good job, Anna. 
still prophesying. Anna tells of this good news to all looking for the redemption of Israel. We know little of Simeon's background, but we know that Anna is a widow, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, one of the lost tribes of Israel destroyed by the Assyrians in the northern kingdom 700 years earlier. Asher, by the way, means, anybody know in Hebrew? Happy. Asher. Why happy? Because Leah wanted again a child, and Leah gets a child through Asher and is happy. And so this sort of story resonates in all of the pregnancies and anticipations that God would bless and God would make happy. But she's part of one of those lost tribes. But they're still here. Luke's telling us that they're still here. There's an expectation that all 12 tribes will be reunited when the Messiah comes. And Anna of the tribe of Asher is here. The kingdom of God is on the move. You see, just those little bits of lines that Luke is putting in the text mean so much to the hearers. Anna from the tribe of Asher. They're there too. So Simeon and Anna wait lifetimes for hope. The kingdom is on the move. It's on the move from Nazareth to Bethlehem to Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. The kingdom of God is on the move. They're waiting for it, and here it comes. We don't know what happens to the shepherds or Simeon or Anna after this. They might not even live to see the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're simply left with their joy at the good news of his birth. The kingdom of God is on the move. From Nazareth to Bethlehem to Jerusalem to the edge of the earth, ends of the earth, the kingdom of God is moving. It's on the move. And all of Jesus' followers will need to be on the move too. Jesus is born in the shadow of this empire, and it's still good news. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine believing that the gospel has shown up in the midst of these powers and principalities and structures of existence in that world? So how can Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, shepherds, Simeon, and Anna have such confident expectation and joy in the face of such brutality of the empire? How could they possibly believe that good news has been born in the city of David? They remember that, what does Zechariah's name mean? God remembers. They retell their stories and songs, the ones from thousand years before and the ones that have been God's faithfulness over and over again. They proclaim God keeps promises, Elisheva, Elizabeth. They declare God is gracious, Yohanan, John. They declare God's salvation, Yeshua. They declare God is with us, Emmanuel. The birth of Christ is a dream that neither they nor we knew to dream It is a love so selfless, so no human could possibly imagine it, let alone bring it to pass. It is pure grace, the life of God given for the life of the world. So how do we respond to such a remarkable gift? What gift can we possibly offer in return? We offer nothing less than our very lives, poured out in thanksgiving and joy. Mouths filled with laughter and tongues that shout with joy. Hearts that hold on to the good, the hope, and pursuit of justice, especially when there is no earthly reason for such a hope. What do we do when the empire looms large, when evil seems to be on the throne? We remember that God remembers. We retell their stories and their songs, and we sing. We proclaim God keeps promises. We declare God is gracious. We declare God's salvation, and we declare God is with us. God is here. Jesus is born.
And when we follow their example, every Advent, when we tell these stories every year, when we read these passages over and over again, when we listen to them in the Peanuts Christmas Carol, and Linus tells it one more time, we declare that in Christ, the kingdom of God is on the move. Now, in that Bethlehem house of bread, bakery town, where our Savior Messiah is placed into a manger, where living water is placed for those who are thirsty, we remember that we are hungry, but not just for bread. We are hungry for communion. We are hungry to be brought to his banqueting table in his kingdom that is coming crashing down on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're hungry for. And Jesus invites us there and meets us there. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is the body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. All are welcome at this table. Come, all you are hungry, come and eat. All you are thirsty, come and drink. The table has been prepared.